Welcome to Social Meditations. In this episode, my friend Adler Archer, who is a biomedical innovation researcher, systems engineer, and social entrepreneur, will join us. He researches clinician-led innovation creation, innovation diffusion, and population health informatics at John Hopkins and the University of London. Adler has led a boutique consulting firm called Alasis since 2005, which provides technology services to federal government agencies including NASA, the Departments of Commerce, Defense, the Interior, and Veteran Affairs. Along with having a JD and many masters, he has a master's in mindfulness neuroscience from King's College in London. Adler, thank you so much for being on my podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> me too. Um, I usually start, you know, th with this question that's pretty open, but it's like, what was an early or uh, one of your first sort of spiritual experiences that you remember being aware of yourself and like being curious about the nature of your experience or your reality? Like what's something that comes up if I ask you that? Yeah. Um, it's interesting because I grew up going to church, um, which in and of itself isn't that strange, but I, I was born in the U.S., but I grew up in Japan. So I grew up going to like an American Christian church in Japan. So it was a part of my life from a really young age, but I think the first time when I reflect back that I can say I had like a, a really personal experience that was like sp spiritual and um, really, really kind of crystallized who I was as a spiritual being was the Jesus closet, which um, it, uh, it's not as scary as it sounds. So <laughs> we used to do these um, winter retreats in Japan um, where we would go away to the mountains and snowshoe and um, have green tea and just be silly kids in the woods, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, talk about Jesus. And uh, yeah, we, I, I think I've probably gone to a few before I decided to go into the Jesus closet, which is probably, you know, of course, gay guys. So there's got to be some kind of coming out of the closet aspect to this. But uh, yeah, so the Jesus closet was essentially this place where if you just felt like you really wanted to like signify like changing your life uh, or maybe changing your view of yourself in life, um, you would go in the closet and it was one of the only times during the whole experience when you're completely alone because everything else is centered around being in groups and you know there's of course groupthink and a lot of just ideas around what you're meant to be right um and so for me it was like not only was it a, a really like spiritual experience of going in reflecting on this idea of dedicating myself to jesus but also like comfort and solitude as well because I'm an oldest child and my siblings are close in age. And so, you know, outside of the wilderness of Japan, like back in my, you know, day-to-day -day life as a kid, I was kind of like looking after them and thinking about them. And so just to have some solitude really, and just uh, this, the, the fortifying effect of that, that really stuck with me as well. So I came out of the Jesus closet, um, reformed and renewed, and on fire for Jesus. So, yeah, I would say that's probably the first, uh, yeah, the earliest. Wow. <laughs> Changed man. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. <laughs> I mean, the world is just so rich, and, uh, like, I didn't know there was a Jesus closet. <laughs> so <that's laughs> what are you doing with your life? I know. <laughs> Especially now, you know, with COVID-19, like maybe maybe I should go back into the Jesus closet. I feel like it might be safe and calm and no COVID. Yeah. What, what is it that happened when you're in this 
room was there like a was there a statue or a visage of Jesus or were you like like what was it like in there? <laughs> yeah, that's 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 the weird thing. It was it wasn't really like a special closet. Um, there wasn't like an altar or anything. It was I think it was maybe it was just a closet. And some at some point someone said this is now the Jesus closet. Um, but it was really plain and simple. Um, there was a light in the closet, um, and people had some people had carved their names or other things into different parts around the door frame, but it, it wasn't like a really um, like high fashion or high aesthetic um, situation. It was just, it was really simple. And that was, that was really beautiful as well. Because I think sometimes, uh, you know, a lot of people have talked about spiritual um, materialism and kind of all of the things that we can build up around this experience. So for me, it was, um, really freeing in a way to just be in the closet with Jesus, um, which, you know, kind of tracks with some of my life experience beyond the actual Jesus closet. So, uh, but finding that, um, that res inner reserve, maybe there's maybe a flavor of that, like this sense that, um, yeah, it's interesting to think about it, it was so long. I'm so old, <laughs> but you know, it was such a long time ago. I'm trying to fire up my brain cells to, think back to them but yeah no i get it there's a simplicity and and a, almost a starkness like you were with yourself mm. and you could feel yourself and it's mm. interesting you mentioned how a lot of the other activities you had this sort of group activities and there's the group think or the mm. pressures of social normalizations and try to fit into this range and yet here you are and when did you know, was it at that time that you felt like, yeah, I'm gay and this is like, like, I know this about myself? No, oh no, I was, that was such a long... <laughs> so I'm being... Um, <laughs> no, no, I'm, th I'm thinking about, I'm, well, I'm wondering if then, you know, I probably had a crush on some of the guys, but I, I just, I was a late bloomer in that way. I don't, I don't think back to my childhood and feel super repressed or super... I mean, now, you know, with adult eyes, I can look back and see, oh, yeah, that that guy had a crush on me or I had a crush on that guy and I missed my chance. I could be barefoot and preggers by now, but um, but alas, here we are. Um, now, I don't think, it, I think it was more so just about, because I'm a military brat, so before we got to Japan, we moved around a lot. Um, and so... I was in a sense comfortable with being an outsider, being feeling out of place. Um, so the solitude wasn't unfamiliar, mm -hmm. but I guess in this instance, it felt purposeful. It felt like it served a purpose, uh, the solitude, this reflection. Um, it wasn't um, unsettling or rearranging in a way. It was more so um, grounding, which was, was nice to have. That's so interesting. I've often thought, like, depending on which door you walk into the room of solitude, it could be either terrifying or delightful. And it really yeah. is context. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just thinking, as you're saying that, I'm thinking about um, different experiences that I had as a kid going to different schools. Like, I remember <laughs> uh, we lived in Texas. For, I think maybe my first grade year and yeah. I remember um, and I don't remember if it was the hallway outside of the cafeteria um, but this kid called me the n-word and I thought um, or essentially he was saying he didn't want to hang out with me or eat with me because of it and I just thought I was so confused I mean, and I was born in the South, so it wasn't like I never heard the word. I was, my parents definitely, we had the conversation about racism and all of these things. But I think that, because I'm just reflecting on like periods where I felt really alone. And I think that was very, and that wasn't characteristic of all of the kids, but I just remember, I don't know why I felt so, um, wasn't even hurt, it was just disappointed. Like disappointed yeah. in him for not being a better person, perhaps. Um, which sounds like a, a letter I could send to an ex or something like that. Just, it was more so disappointment in humans, I guess, feeling disappointed in the species. And so, yeah, so thinking, you know, fast forwarding to the closet and being 
alone there and thinking about all of the positive things that um, were happening in that space and how people were so intentional about coming together and supporting each other and exploring with each other and snowshoeing with each other. And I always made weird contraptions. So I like made, there was some kind of strainer that we would use for our green tea, but I always wanted to like mix stuff in. So I was always making messes and, but you know, just exploring with, with each other. <laughs> um, yeah, so it was just a different, it was like a really, so I think having that and then having that, being able to go into the Jesus closet and have that experience as well um, was restorative as well. Yeah. You know, I think that's so, so interesting because when you, you have such a creative mind and playful mind and I, knowing you, I can see how, um, you know, when you see the potential and you appreciate life and you see what people, human beings are capable of, you know, the reaction of disappointment to someone being enmeshed in this ignorance is like, oh, it's just disappointment. Like, you can do better. <laughs> like mm. that, that's so. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so there's this beautiful kind of, uh, there's a nurturing quality to that. And I feel like you've clearly been able to kind of nurture that nurturing called <laughs> an adult too but having experience in groups and out groups and understanding all of that how I, what are some other ways you've had to navigate that i know in your you know you've spoken about your professional career and it's it kind of blows my mind i mean you've done a lot you you were in the military uh i mean that environment especially at that time, that was the sort of don't ask, don't tell era. And right. there was almost, I don't know, I'm curious, like how did you see in-group, out-group and social pressures there? Like how did you work with that at that point in your life? Yeah, it's interesting because I, um, on the one hand, military culture felt very familiar to me. Um, my dad was in the military. Like say we moved around a lot for his work. Uh, when we were in Japan, he wasn't in the military, but he worked for the U.S. government. So we went to school on a military base. So um, the culture was very familiar and very comfortable. Um, but yeah, so I served from 2000 to 2004 in the Air Force. Um, and I worked as a military intelligence analyst, so I had a security clearance. So I had a job that was really all about um, like integrity and um, transparency in appropriate settings and um, and to some degree mindfulness and trust. And so it, was, it created a lot of dissonance, cognitive dissonance for me to have this position, to have these credentials and to have these expectations and then also have this um, law essentially that said um, it was fine for me to risk my life for my country, um, but if people knew that I was gay, like the wheels would just come off and the military would fall apart and just wouldn't work anymore. So, so I could, I could be gay if I was willing to risk my life, but I just couldn't tell people because that was the problem really is people just wouldn't know what to do in response to that. So, um, yeah, so that led me to therapy, needless to say. Uh, yeah. Uh, which was, was really helpful because I was introduced to cognitive behavioral therapy um, we talked a lot about this idea that, you know, your moods and your emotions and your thoughts and your environment, these are all levers that you can pull. Uh, and I don't think people are taught that enough. Like we sometimes feel um, trapped in our thoughts or trapped in our emotions. Um, but we have a lot of, there's a lot that we can do and we can't change it all, but we don't have to change it all. Sometimes it's just, you know, getting away from negative people or um, just choosing a different thought really. Um, is some is some of the work, and so just kind of getting introduced to that, and that's eventually what um, encouraged me to get into meditation and some other stuff. But yeah, it was interesting to see. I mean, for me, you know, being gay, which I was not really openly gay in the military because it was against the law, um, and then also being black in a career field that was very small. So we had, I mean, the Air Force has you know lots and lots of people. Needless to say, my career field had about four hundred. And if memory serves, 395 were white men. Um, there was a woman who coincidentally was my supervisor uh, until she went into a different program that was for super smart people um, and amazing people. And she became a doctor in the military and did some other stuff. 
and then I think there was maybe an Asian guy. I feel like maybe there was one other black guy and a Latino guy. So, you know, very diverse. Um, yeah. So there are just a whole lot of things around race and sexual orientation. Um, and then we were, our work was very technical and complicated. So it was, um, it was difficult in some ways to get into the career field. And so I think it attracted people who were really serious about their work and wanted to work on it. But I also wanted to like, you know, so obviously the military is very competitive and I, my, I know my overwhelming masculinity probably gives people a lot of pause, but, um, so I found myself like competing with like bigger guys to show like, I can run faster than you, or I can do more pushups than you. Um, but in a fun, like, I feel like it was in a positive, but it wasn't like, um, in a negative way. So, but that wasn't really part of the motto for the career field I was in. I think a lot of other people were very serious and quite academic about the work. Um, so, you know, that brings another flavor of in and out. And so, yeah. It feels like, you know, having this, that nurturing this view that how you look at things is really part of your power in the world, that you've, you, you had this innately in you this wisdom and then through life experiences, adversity and, you know, um, bizarre kind of, when you talk about that era, it's so funny, it's not that long ago, but it really sounds so absurd now. <laughs> but it's like, yeah. like, uh, yeah, <clears throat> we have to prevent these fragile minds from having to contemplate things they don't want to. I mean, it's, it's what is that? <laughs> it's just only yeah. strange. Uh, there's a lot of strange assumptions, but you lived through it. You found the cognitive behavioral therapy and then meditation, but that was, um, it's interesting. I find this a lot. It's like the innateness of the intelligence of our living presence of being alive. The innateness of that intelligence finds many different ways to express itself in human cultures. And one of them happens to be these techniques, but you were already living um, that kind of life and, and looking at things in that way. So I find that really interesting. I wonder how that sort of played out in, in the rest of your career or professionally. Like what, what have you wanted to focus on or what have you found yourself kind of uh, shining into? Well, I would say one thing that I was really focused on after I got out of the military was when the opportunity presented itself was don't ask, don't tell, repeal. And when you were talking about the fragile, fragile minds, it made me think back to this. Uh, uh, so I, I co-chair the political committee for HRC, which is a human rights campaign. So um, every state has a, um, a steering committee and then there's a political committee. And so I co-chair the political committee. So we were focused on the federal um, politicians who represented Colorado. So we would, um, we would meet with them in district in Colorado, and then we would fly to DC to talk to them. And so I was fortunate in that we had two Democratic senators who were amazing. And then I want to say three of the five representatives were also Democrats and very, very supportive. One of whom is Jared Polis, who um, mm. is one of the, the few openly gay um, Congress, Congress, well, now he's governor, but at the time he was a, a congressman. Uh, so super supportive, but there was a Republican. Um, this may um, surprise people to know that he was not necessarily super supportive of the cause, didn't have a rainbow flag um, in his office. But so we, we did meet with his staff. He wouldn't meet with us, but we did meet with his staff one year. We were talking to, um, to a guy who he was in the military as well. Uh, this was in my blonde days, by the way. So I was um, oh. a blonde for two years. I'm actually a natural blonde. You may not know that I dye my hair now just to kind of throw people off the track. But yeah, so that was my, when I was living my truth for two years as a blonde. So I think that and like a lot of other things, I probably didn't seem to him like someone who'd been in the military. So he was just telling me about how I wouldn't understand what it was like to be in the military and how uncomfortable it would make people to, you know, like have to work with gay people. And so I just said, you know, I, I went to boot camp and I showered with 60 guys and I actually never touched anyone's penis. I was really, really focused on my job and um, missing my family. And I was just thinking about, you know, being in the military, um, not the penis. So, and I don't remember anyone really having an issue with me. I just kind of, I just did my job. And so, 
Um, he didn't have a response to that, which he seemed to know all the other things. So it was surprising that he couldn't um, respond to that, but he couldn't. So, um, yeah, but I, I do think it is this sometimes people for fear for a lot of other reasons, they, it's much more comfortable to assume we already know, we know all the things. Um, and I try really hard not to do that. Um, mm. I try not to do it internally and I try not to project myself in a way that I would be perceived as someone who knows all the things. And it's challenging, right? I have three masters and a doctorate. So I think people assume that I know a lot of things and there's some, there, there are things that I know. I know about rocket science and neuroscience and law and informatics, but in none of those spaces do I approach them as though I know all the things just because I have graduate degrees or work for companies in this space. I still approach it as I can learn. Um, and not just from someone who has more degrees or more experience, but from anyone. Uh, I think that's been part of my success is wanting to learn from, from every experience that I could. That's, that is so beautiful to me. That reminds me of my, my father was so open to learning and he always said to me, kiddo, if you want to learn, uh, you know, teach. And if you want to learn, learn more, learn from your students, you know, like it's an endless cycle learning is endless. And, uh, I see you sort of saying this. And I also think of your practice in meditation. And I think of how those of us who are interested in being with ourselves, it's this endless learning and there's so much we don't know um, and being able to be with that is is a skill that is almost it's so much more important than whether or not we know a thing or not right it's so cool yeah. the way you're and to live that in the world I mean how have you seen your sort of um, I would say thirst for learning or, um, you know, quest for learning show up in your life around, you know, what has been really turning you on these days around sh uh, sharing your gifts in the world? What, what is it that you've been excited about? Yeah, I like that thirst for learning. I'm going to say that to my mom because she says I'm nosy. So I feel like we need to refra <laughs> reframe that in a more positive way for that woman. Um, no, she's very... Uh, very, I think that's a big part of it is they, I grew up in a household where my parents encouraged me to be curious. And so in some ways that, that drives me now, this curiosity to understand people, um, to understand myself. Um, I think professionally how that shows up is looking at the spaces that I occupy and who are people that don't have access either to the space or to the services we provide. Um, you know, working at Johns Hopkins as a researcher and a presidential fellow, I get access to people who, who are doing really great things in the world and who I admire. Um, and at the same time, I appreciate the fact that it's not the kind of access or the level of access that other people might get. And so my agenda oftentimes is how can I get these people to think about the people that don't have access to them or the people that um, don't have access to hope even, especially in a place like Baltimore um, and not being from here. Um, I wasn't really aware of the, the level of um, despair that people have because everywhere else I've lived, like I lived in London, like people come from all over Europe and the world to live in London. And I lived in Manhattan and, you know, people are the same. Um, Denver, it's like mile high, beautiful. So I've, I've probably always lived places, Florida, Patrick Air Force Base and uh, places in Texas. So I've always lived places where people wanted to go. Um, and I think in Baltimore, it's the first place I've lived where people are just, they feel hopeless and broken. Not all people, but just seeing that so much. Um, and I saw it in New York, but it was different, right? Because I think people come to New York and they expect to struggle in a way. I certainly had a lot of friends who came to New York and they left after maybe three to six months. Um, so that's kind of the expectation, though. You're like, you're aspiring, you're going towards something. Whereas here, people, you know, people don't have the basic things. And so you don't even have um, this idea of hope or um, aspirations, you're just trying to survive. 
So I think for me, I'm trying to think about what are things that I can do to help or support, um, make that a little better for people. So uh, I'm on the health law committee for the Baltimore City Bar Association. So we look at um, uh, things like how does the law impact people's health status and what are policies and what are ways to collaborate. Um, and so there's something called a medical legal partnership where you, uh, you know, pay one in six low income Americans who have a health issue have a health harming legal issue. So for example, if you have diabetes, but you don't have a home, like how do you safeguard your medication? How do you keep it at the right temperature? And then also if your income is low enough or you don't have any income, you may be eligible for legal aid or supportive housing. But if you don't have a home and you have diabetes and you don't have enough income, you're not gonna be like, you know, be bopping around Baltimore trying to figure out what kind of free programs you qualify for. You're gonna be trying to figure out, you know, how to make it to tomorrow. So um, really medical legal partnerships are about bringing lawyers to the point of care to help patients with issues that, that they could support with. Because um, hospitals have lawyers, but generally, um, no offense to my brethren, but they're not there for the patient. They're there to protect the, the hospitals from the patients to some degree, or just to make sure that, that uh, it's a safe space and that policies are being followed to uh, make sure that it's a quality environment for all parties. Um, but not necessarily to help, you know, Bob navigate like a landlord tenant issue or, um, you know, some type of supportive housing because they're experiencing domestic violence or a lot of other things that for a lawyer to write a letter or to intervene is not a huge um, task um, if they have access to the client and it's structured in a way that they can go and provide their expertise and then the person can go on with that expertise. Um, so yeah, I'd say access to care, health equity, you know, looking at health disparities. For me, that's a really concrete space, um, looking at the fact that one in five, um, actually this one is more troubling to me. So um, if you look at a, a white man and a black man in Baltimore who has HIV or AIDS, um, the black man is five times more likely to die so it's not to contract it, it's assuming they both have it, but it's just um, that the black men would be five times more likely to die, um, which I think speaks to our healthcare system and the level of distrust some people have of the system because of the way they're treated. So there are a lot of studies around um, stigmatizing language and care and people's electronic health records um, and kind of highlighting how that affects whether or not someone's pain is taken seriously, um, that affects whether or not someone has immediate access to the care they need. And so these types of issues just um, further disenfranchise people and disconnect people. So if you're not getting good health care and you feel hopeless, like I couldn't imagine, honestly, I couldn't imagine what it would feel like to be in that space. So I think I get excited about, um, I get jazzed about or pumped up about how to help in that way. Um, and self-care, I'm not going to lie. It's not like I'm like out trying to save the world. I love Netflix. I love, <laughs> I love drinking wine and watching Netflix. I'm certainly, um, I'm not a workaholic, so I definitely like to take care of myself and relax. But I do find that there's enough time to do both. There's enough time to balance like my professional work and research with advocacy and, and, and self-care. So, um, Yeah. And doing the next small thing, right? Because I think people always feel like it's got to be this big thing that you're doing. And a lot of times it's just just caring about another person. Um, and I, when I think about big things that have happened for me, I think it's been, you know, I tell people this story about a, uh, a commander I had in the military uh, when I was at Patrick Air Force Base in Florida. And, he, and I just really looked up to him. He seemed so smart and cool and interesting. And, you know, like commander... He was either a commander, he was an officer, so he was much higher up the food chain than me, but um, I just admired him. And I was talking to him one day and he's like, you're really weird. And I thought, oh. And he's like, no, that's good. He's like, you're, you're so weird that you're not gonna fit in. So don't waste your time, just be yourself. Don't worry about what the other people are saying or thinking, just be yourself and enjoy that. Um, enjoy the fact that you get to do that. And for me, that was hugely freeing. So, you know, for all the times that I've had someone call me um, a racial slur or a homophobic, homophobic slur or have vandalized my property 
or assaulted me physically or verbally or other things. For all of those things, I've had a lot more positive. Uh, or I've had just confused people. So like I was, my parents live um, in Alabama and I was visiting, um, I bought a new car. I had like a midlife crisis and got a sports car. And so um, I was at the, at the post office and this, this guy, and it was a red sports car, right? So, you know, nothing screams secure and myself like a red sports car. Um, but this kid saw it. And so he came over and he wanted to like look and says, so like, hey, I get in. So he's like, you know, jerking the steering wheel around and putting fingerprints all over my windows, which is, you know, lovely. It's great. And so I started talking to his dad and his, we were just talking and I saw him that I live in Baltimore and I was visiting my parents and I'd just driven down because I like to drive. And um, so he's like, yeah, can you believe that cowardice mayor in Baltimore took down the Confederate statues? And I was like, <laughs> I was like, you see I'm black, right? I mean, this is such a strange direction for this conversation to go. Um, you're, there's not like a, a banjo that's going to start playing before you throw me in your trunk, right? Like, I hope this isn't going to go that direction. But oh, no. I think he just felt like really comfortable. And I think he felt really sincere and was maybe not aware that, that I might have a different view of the Confederate flag and Confederate generals than he did. Um, so, but, you know, even in that, you know, he was a teacher, he, he worked with special needs students and he cared. Mm. And in the part of town that he worked actually had a, a, like a fair amount of black students. So I don't think it was a nasty thing or like an intentionally racist thing per se. I think it was just a different point of view. Um, and I didn't even take that time to try to push an agenda with him. I just tried to understand where he was coming from, um, you know, like celebrate the work he was doing with kids um, and try to focus on his humanity instead of the, the things that I didn't like about him, uh, not least of which would include his, the fingerprints on my window. I said <laughs> clean. So, um, yeah, but I, I can, you know, I've had, a, I've actually had a fair amount of experiences like that. Like we, when we were lobbying for Donas Hotel Repeal, I remember, we were talking to, I always say senator, but it wasn't a senator, I think it was a staffer. Um, but he said something like, you know, they were concerned about pro-LGBT legislation because 97% of gay men are pedophiles. And I thought, you know, I do like numbers and statistics, but I feel like, first of all, you know, obviously that's hugely offensive, but it's offensive like personally, but also as a scientist, it was like, what, like, I don't know. It just so you know, and Secret Service doesn't like it when you throw hot coffee at people. So they just kind of had to like stand there and say, you know, I'm gonna have to disagree with your math. Um, but he wasn't trying to offend me. Um, I don't think. I definitely have had people who try to offend me. I don't. I honestly, I think he was probably bad at math. This one issue, at education. But he was genuinely concerned about children. And so you know, then I think it's an opportunity for me to say, well, I don't agree with with the way that you frame this, but I do appreciate the concern for children and I can meet you in that space and talk about, you know, LGBT children who have a higher rate of suicide uh, than uh, non-LGBT uh, children. Um, and, you know, he was religious and just talking about LGBT youth who are Christians have an even higher rate than non-Christian LGBT youth. So, you know, like I'm, I'm very concerned about kids as well. Um, and so I think trying to do that, trying to figure out where, where can we, where's the space we can meet? I think Rumi talks about that, finding mm. a space. Um, but yeah, and I don't do it right, believe me, I send some salty emails, real salty. So it's not like I'm, again, I'm not like, I don't have it all figured out, but that's my intention, I guess. I try to at least have that intention to try to meet people where they are and understand where they're coming from. Oh, Adler, that's beautiful. I mean, that's a capacity in humanity that I love about us, uh, is that our ability to be, to, to feel that we're bigger than what we're hearing, feeling, seeing, thinking. We're bigger than that. There's more room for all. It doesn't mean we like it, and yet then what do you do? You know, if you see someone's potential as you do, I see you in the world and I know you and I know your style is to evoke and bring out and nurture the best in people around. You want to kind of like say, yeah, but what about this? And it is this kind of dance. It's like, I can focus on this. And of course, we all get frustrated because 
um, you know, ignorant, prejudiced behaviors just at some point it can be very hurtful and it's, it's like, no, don't do that. But then what do you, if you, if you're actually having dialogue the way you are, it's like so inspiring because, um, you know, you're still seeing their potential. That's the way I hear you, you know, also not trying to drive like systemic solutions into individual interactions because <laughs> I think after we do that we realize that it doesn't even work <laughs> right <laughs> on a more um, more impactful level though like more systemically when you talked about advocacy I thought that was so interesting it's almost like you're trying to uh, just the idea of having um, because even just in anyone's, I think, experience when they do try to get healthcare, at least in America, it feels like if you don't have someone in the room, you know, it's like, hey, no, uh, this, and don't, you know, don't go there, go to this. And I'm not putting down the doctors or the healthcare workers who are working as hard as they can, but it's also just this idea that the, sometimes the person who's hurting is the last person that needs to be speaking on their own behalf and looking for resources and trying to make sure they get what they need. And then the system is also set it up such that the, the healthcare workers, like you said, just like the lawyers are looking out for the safety of the hospital and protecting the organization, well, the, necessarily in this system, the doctors and nurses and people are really looking out to make sure they're uh, safe in their role. Um, but when real altruism comes in, that's when the sun comes out, the beauty of, of our potential. And I just, I see that in, in the work you're doing with advocacy and also, I think on a larger scale, the work you've been doing with sort of telemedicine, and I wonder if you'd say a little bit about how that has felt for you, like trying to share uh, across the globe in places that might not get some of these uh, resources right now. Yeah, yeah. I, so telemedicine for me is such a, um, such a place of potential. And so I think even, you know, in response to COVID-19, it's being used more. Um, the government's reimbursing providers for using it more. And it's really interesting because the technology is not new. I actually was doing, I was doing a presentation yesterday and I was saying that it's not, this is not new technology. <laughs> Computers have been around for a while. Internet's been around. Um, but I think it's, um, but there are a lot of incentives, right? So there are incentives to keep the system the way that it is. There are incentives to limit access to care. If you're focused on a profit margin, um, there are, you know, things work the way they work for a reason. So before COVID-19, I was already involved in um, telemedicine-related work through a, um, a charity that I'm on the board of directors for that my friend Niha started. And um, so we work in rural India. Um, we've worked in um, Bangladesh and Haiti as well with those contracts of ended. And we work in the Philippines and we're gonna be moving into Syria soon. And um, we've been really, we have really smart people, um, not, not me, people much smarter than me, um, that have figured out how to do all this stuff. Um, and so we've been, you know, lucky that Hopkins, Johns Hopkins has given us money um, and Google and other, Malago Foundation and others to help fund our work. Um, and so generally I divide telemedicine up when I explain it into three different things. Some people only look at two. Um, and it's not a better or worse, it's just a different, my view is maybe a little bit different. So I think about like informative telemedicine, which would be when you're uh, transmitting information remotely. So you could like be going in for a scan and like a technician takes your scan and then they send it off somewhere else. Um, or you could have like a pacemaker that's connected to a network over Wi-Fi or um, cellular network and sending your data um, or your Fitbit or all of these things that are monitoring. And so they're not actually, you're not getting medical advice, it's just transferring the information. So that's first informative. The second is clinical telemedicine where you would, might be having an encounter with your doctor or nurse or um, clinician um, using remote technology. So it's the actual practice of medicine. And then the third area I think about is, um, and I'm really focused on more now, is uh, telehealth for social determinants of health. And so this idea that, you know, like you can do all the things as a clinician for someone's primary care, right? But if they don't have a home, um, if they don't have a job, if they are feeling unwell mentally, if their nutrition's off, um, if their environment is 
like uh, toxic and unsafe because of chemicals and lead and other things, you're not going to be able to get them the best health outcome. So really social determinants look at what are all of the other pieces? What are all the other levers you can pull to um, help impact a person's health? And so then my interest is how can we leverage technology to do that? Um, and so we've got a team of really smart uh, graduate bioengineering students from Hopkins who the university has given to us for a year to help brainstorm about how we can uh, apply this technology in the U.S. Uh, in Baltimore. And then I've got some friends at Yale and New Haven who have some similar um, concerns for the population that they have there. So just kind of brainstorming how we can do that. And there are also lots of other um, tech companies who are kind of looking at that, but that's something I'm really interesting, interested in as how can we do that? So with the way our system works now is we have community health workers who are generally trained by an Indian nonprofit or maybe the government to go out and collect information from their neighbors. So we have an app that is Android based that they can use to go out and um, we have AI built in, so it kind of walks them through the kind of questions to ask. And then that comes back through our platform. Clinicians can log in um, somewhere else in the world and like, you know, give advice. And then um, we've got um, like Zoom and WhatsApp and other things built in. So if they need to communicate with the health worker, they can. And then the health worker goes back out into the community and, you know, does whatever the next step is. So, but part of that process is our system automatically generates a patient ID um, when the health worker makes an encounter. So with that ID, we could plug that into a lawyer, right? So then this health worker, we can have a community legal worker, community wellness worker who's going out. They can go and connect with the same person. And um, maybe we have an app that kind of walks them through um, employment questions or other types of questions. And then that is fed through our system to a portal where a lawyer can log in or someone from a workforce development site can log in. Um, and then of course the patient can provision who has access. So we're kind of like playing around with that and trying to figure out who are the best um, partners to work with. Um, but a lot of the issue is things are siloed. So even, you know, like talking to other lawyers about working, doing more pro bono, or I'm really interested in advocacy for veterans as well. One of the issues is how do we like, how do we get to the people? Cause we've got a full-time job already that we're doing. So how do we, we're happy to use our knowledge to help people, but how do we get to them? How do we make sure like they're getting high quality information um, and it's not just something that we're just doing like on the side because it's free, but you know, they're getting quality um, advocacy. And so I think technology can be really powerful there. Um, oh, that is so cool. Yeah, I like it. And I, I think that mostly I like the people I get to work with because um, it's people who are creative and smart and interesting and interested in helping. Um, so I just I feel really lucky that I get to do work that's interesting to me, and I get to work with people who I like and respect a lot, um, and we get to help people, and it doesn't cut into my Netflix and wine time. So you know, um, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you know, this is it's so interesting because you've also we've had a number of conversations about your nonprofit Wakeful Warriors, mm. um, mm. and I. I almost remember the three slogans, but I'd rather hear it from <laughs> the source. Um, I feel like it's I change a really it every time. <laughs> well, I like whatever you've been um, doing. <laughs> yeah, so the first is mentally fit. Um, and so it just co comes from, so when I went to London the first time, I did a, a master's in mindfulness neuroscience and clinical applications. And so really understanding how meditation, how contemplative practices affect the brain. Um, and how to actionize those into clinical interventions. And one of the things I found is that just looking at the research and different studies and the teachings that I received in the program, um, which isn't surprising, but people are very, you know, like having a mental health diagnosis can be very stigmatizing for people. And so my sense was, why not approach it like a fitness? Um, because regardless of your mental health status, there are always things you can do to, um, to be more resilient or to feel a greater sense of calm or grounding or power or awareness. And so what are things we can do to help someone improve their mental fitness? Um, and so approaching it that way, there are exercises you can do or, or thinking about it like a mental hygiene, you know, so people talk about like brain brushing and these kinds of things. Yeah. So the second slogan is physically brave. Um, and this one I like a lot because it, and it was important to me to incorporate because there, like, if you want to get six pack abs, there are lots of places you can go. Or if you want to, um, 
look have a certain aesthetic. There are lots of groups that are around that, and there's nothing wrong with that. I participate in things like that, um, but I'm really curious about what it looks like for the person who's you know 300 pounds and they're just hurting in their body and feeling um, disconnected and judged. Like, what does it look like for them? Because they're probably not going to want to go to the CrossFit gym and sling weights around, right? So like, mm -hmm. what is what is the next step for them? Like, what is brave for them? And for some, it might be just putting on shoes and going for a walk and not feeling self-conscious because people might be staring at you um, and making judgments about you. Mm -hmm. um, and so how can we cultivate that? And, you know, maybe if you've already got, you know, the six pack abs and you feel like you look like Adonis, maybe for you physically brave is being less judgmental of yourself and others, or maybe having the, having the cookie, you know, you having the carbs, it's okay. Um, so like, but more so that, more so like, what is your intention around fitness? Um, and realizing that those two things, they feed each other. So there are periods where you may feel just defeated by life. And so maybe just getting up and going for a walk is physically brave, but it also can help you with your mental acuity and mental fitness as well. Um, and there may be times when you're feeling really self-conscious or really judged about your physical body, um, whether it be what it looks like or how it feels to inhabit it um, or other limitations you might have. And so maybe just taking a deep breath and um, doing a loving kindness meditation um, could be really transformative and encourage you to, even if it's not to take a big physical step, just to take, to, to actionize or apply that, that mindfulness um, physically. Uh, and so the third is socially strong. And I, I have a cheeky grin because in some ways I kind of, I've adopted a Shambhala um, concept. And I'll just say it the other way, which is, um, reducing the level of craziness within so you put less of it out in the world and if that's all you do you know that's a lot because a lot of the issues we have um, from t people you know tweeting go drink bleach to all kinds of stuff is really you know like our inability to manage our own selves and then that leaking out and creating a lot of havoc in the world so um, but I suspect that when you do have a, a mental fitness routine and you are living in a way that's brave physically that you want to be connected and doesn't turn introverts into extroverts. Not that that's a goal to have anyway, but it at least um, can plug people in in a way or make them feel, help them feel connected. So, and that, and for me, I think that's like, when I think about being black, gay, um, person from the deep South that grew up in Asia that has dyslexia and dyspraxia and all of these other things, you know, that kind of, could help me feel like I'm not in the cool kids club. Um, having these other practices help me see that we're all dealing with this, really. We're all, no one's got it figured out, no matter how. I've met some really fancy, impressive people, politicians, celebrities that look, you know, real good on TV. But then when you get up close, it's like, mm hmm, I see some cracks in that facade. Um, and so it's just realizing we've all got it, no matter how. Um, sorted out someone seems and so being being compassionate towards yourself and i love Pema talks about um you know like when you get a new puppy and the puppy's being wild you don't like i always say my neighbor's got a new puppy and their puppy is yeah. very cute but can be a bit a bit yappy uh, but you don't <laughs> smack the puppy, right you're just like okay now don't now don't you know stop doing that on the carpet and you're patient and so can we do that with ourselves and I think the better we are at doing that with ourselves, being patient, which doesn't mean just letting yourself go wild. Like um, you have to, you do have to have discipline, but can you do that from a place of compassion? And so I, I would say that's a big part of Wake for Warriors is how can we build a community that's compassionate uh, where it, it starts within and it overflows. So it's coming from a place of abundance, like abundant compassion. Mm. Maybe, we're, maybe we're just making that term up right now. Maybe we should trademark that. I like overflowing that. compassion. <laughs> yeah. Bounce of compassion. We'll figure. I'll get. I'll get the marketing. We'll get it sorted out. Um, How, yeah. What kinds of um, programs have you been doing or want to do with this project? So we um, we've done a lunchtime meditation, um, which has gone pretty well. Um, 
But I want to do, I want to do Wineful Wednesdays. I have all these ideas that are just like, I have to think like, because you know, people think about meditation and they have all these ideas about what it looks like. And a big thing for me is accessibility, right? So like, how can we create programs that have access points for any type of person who wants to get involved? So kind of thinking through that a lot. And um, I tricked my friend Carlo into like redoing our website. I, I did Technically, I didn't trick, but I mean, I kind of knew I had an agenda, right? You know, like, can I get him to do some free web design work? Hypnotize him. Um, so we're kind of like working on this site because we want to have, you know, blogs and upload some meditations and stuff. So it's it's very, um, it's very early days. But yeah, so if you have ideas or anyone else has ideas, like, please do. Let me know. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I'm a big fan of that project. And I also just think that you know, the idea of um, creative and different gateways or different ways of making something that you love and feel is helpful accessible to more kinds of um, people of different backgrounds and all that, that just sounds so exciting and uh, kind and nourishing for all of us. It's, um, I feel that the disconnection, um, you talked about a little bit of this in the third, you know, socially strong, but this isolation that people are feeling during physical distancing, but that's not really even it. I'm thinking of the deeper sense of, of disconnection in the society for all of its incredible uh, uh, you know, problems with its history and in the modern world. And, and how do we kind of navigate this moment? You know, I have various conversations with friends like, is, are we still evolving as a species? And, and you know, it's a I don't know if it's one of those answerable questions or not, but I mean, from your perspective, you can see, um, you know, a lot has changed, a lot has transpired, <laughs> a lot of it's good, and then there's this, I, you have this embracing of technology, but then I also, I kind of see this moment, and I, I really wonder post-COVID if there is such a thing, like how will societies, how is technology used responsibly and you know here i see you using it for advocacy but i feel like there's always like these rising uh, forces of how it can be used nefariously and how it can be used uh for the benefit of everyone and nurturing the best in humanity and i i sometimes feel like maybe that i'm just curious how you see that or like what what is there kind of a um a healthy path forward or who knows or what do you what do you if you were just a kind of muse on it yeah i think so there's the issue of technology but technology in a way is a tool um just like anything else we have i think the core symptom is um social distancing from ourselves right so technology is a way that we do that and this was you know this has been going on well before COVID 19 but Really, it is a social distancing from ourselves. And so I hadn't thought about it like that, but that's what it is. And so we have all of these distractions. And I pirate Pema a lot, but she has this teaching where she's talking about how people meditate. And um, they think they're going to meditate for a while and they'll get to a point where then um, they think of their mind as a lake and the water is like really choppy and they think meditation will like calm the water. And then eventually it does. And it's completely calm. And then they can see you know, the tires under the water and the toxic sledge and all the dead bodies from their past misgivings, right? And so then there's a sort of realization that all of that choppiness on the water, all of that discursive thought, um, all of these distractions we create, whether it be with food or uh, alcohol or sex or technology or whatever the case may be, it's these are distractions from what's below the surface. And so I think the perspective is that stuff's there. You know, Bob is under the water. You, you know, you killed him, you know, metaphorically. Um, he's there. So might as well just get comfortable with the fact that, you know, he's down there. And so what do you do with that? Um, and I, I think this, this period for people of physical distancing um, is an opportunity to to become more aware of the distractions. And it's not to get, you know, like sometimes there's a level of trauma or there's a level of stress where a distraction is skillful. Um, and I say that to people sometimes around meditating, you know, some, you know, people feel like, oh my, my I meditate and, and I fall asleep. And it's like, 
that's maybe because you're tired. That might be it. You know, maybe maybe you need to get more sleep. Um, and then there are other periods where you just you're you know your mind is is something that you have to you get to really um, maybe channel a bit differently. Um, so so it's not to say distractions are bad necessarily, but just being aware of them. And I think that's the biggest thing, right? Is so many people aren't aware of the different distractions. And so with technology, it's the same, right? We can have all of the Fitbits and um, healthy technologies, but those can become a distraction. They can push us to a point where we're disconnected from how we feel in our body and we only identify with the metrics. And for me, it's like a former military intelligence analyst and a Manhattan trained lawyer and all of the other training I have that's very analytical. It's very easy for me to default to like analysis. Um, and so I think the more we can use technology to help us experience what it feels like to be a human in our bodies connected to other people, I think that's really powerful. Um, and, and I think there's a lot of potential for that. And I see that happening more. Um, so I'm optimistic. I'm an optimist though, maybe I'm wrong, but I tend to think even, I think that's why, you know, like I have this sense of disappointment when I interact with people. Um, I was saying that to my therapist the other day, we were talking before she broke up with me. And um, I was saying it, about an ex that I had, it was less that I was disappointed that we're not together. And it was just more so I was disappointed in his behavior, you know, like I can deal with us not being together, but I was disappointed in his behavior because I just believed so much in him and I believed so much in his potential. And so that was the difficult thing. And I experienced that with myself, right? Like I have these things where it's not so much that it's even right or wrong. It's like, I, I'm disappointed in myself. And so I think that's where the compassion comes in, right? So I don't think there's necessarily anything inherently wrong with being disappointed, but in some ways like this, this compassion or this mitri or this feeling, this friendliness towards yourself or this orientation of, I don't have to be ashamed of myself mm. or embarrassed of myself uh, or hide from myself. I get to just be with myself and experience what that feels like. Uh, and, and like I said, I do think technology can, it can both bring us closer to that and push us further away. Right. It's almost like it's, it's, it will, I love what you've said because it's not even, I mean, it's it, sure it's a, it's, it's an issue of our time that we're, we're grappling with, but it's not even the right question in a sense. I mean, it's a question, but the way you re answered is more like, well, it's how you use it and it's why you're doing what you're doing. And I, and I feel like, um, what you just shared about, um, you know, seeing the potential in people and being disappointed has been this theme where it's connected to, to compassion. And it's like, if you didn't have so much devotion to people's potential and goodness and didn't see it so clearly and know that they can actually manifest more love and more uh, um, freedom from confusion and if you didn't see, you see that in yourself and you see that in everyone and, and so that kind of illuminates the world and you know and essentially that, that that is haunting but I guess it's the positive kind you know where it's like it, it's so motivating to be like I'm not going to give up you know it's not even an option I've seen you know gone to the mountains seen the other side you can't unsee that you know, once you see that, you see it. And then what? You'd have to live with, how do I help? How can I help? Um, mm -hmm. How can I be part of the, the solution? Obviously, I see your life and I go, oh, you're doing it, Adler. You're like, you're like one of my personal superheroes. I want to give you like a cape and an A that's shining and, you know. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I, I think it's, I've met special people. I would say that i I don't know that I have any area that I'm like exceptional in. And I, I think that's a part of it, right? It's like, I've gotten very comfortable with that. I like to see, I like to see other areas that people are exceptional in. Like you as a teacher and a speaker, like I just love to see that. And whenever we can chat, I love connecting with you because I love to see that. And, and I think part of what drives me is that, you know, like obviously you're aware of that, you're connected to that truth in yourself, but so many people aren't. Like they've never had um, that experience and even just taking it back to the beginning of our conversation I think as we're talking I'm, what's coming to me is that that's part of the Jesus closet was me coming into contact with maybe not a clear idea of what that was but just a sense that there's something there 
you know? So having that is a luxury in a way. Um, yeah. And there's a lot of talk now around privilege, people having different types of privilege. And I think it's an important conversation to have, but you know, sometimes what happens um, is people who have a lot of privilege, it feels like something they have a lot of guilt or shame about. And for me, I realize even with all of these different, you know, minority statuses that I, you know, boxes I can check on things, I still have a lot of um, privilege. And so for me, I think it's an opportunity to, um, to invest it on behalf of other people and not from a sense of, I feel guilty or I feel obligated uh, or anything other than I want to. I want to invest in the potential of other people because people have done that for me. And so, and that's something anyone has a possibility to do, right? So it doesn't matter um, what your race is or your um, income level or anything. You can always invest in, even if it's just investing in yourself to get to know yourself better so that you can show up more as yourself uh, on a day-to-day basis. We can all do that. Yeah. Uh, how I should call you every day. I love talking to you. Just, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on my calendar. I'm gonna call you every morning, and we're just gonna talk. And I feel like then when I get a salty email and I want to reply, I'll be like, what? what? <laughs> I, love, I love talking to you too. How we use it. How we use what we've got. You know, with yeah. love. Yeah. I, it just this is just sort of. Just because I feel like we'll obviously we'll have to have chat many times again, and then yeah. I could go into so many different amazing things with you. But in a final uh, part of this, I'm just wondering: is there anything else you'd like to share that just didn't come up yet in our conversation that's on your mind these days, or uh, any parting thoughts about um, what we've discussed? I've been thinking a lot about how. And it sounds so basic, but I think really meditating it on it more, this idea that every moment is a new opportunity. Um, and I think just sitting with that really, you know, like, cause it seems like, oh, well, yeah, every moment is a new, but I think just, you know, every moment when I feel like, even if I'm meditating and my mind is wandered somewhere else, or if I'm in traffic and I, you know, I'm not always, practicing loving kindness when I drive, you know, every moment is an opportunity to, uh, for a fresh alternative, again, pirating Pema, um, every moment is, there's a, that opportunity is in every moment. And that for me is really freeing when I feel frustrated, when I look at where I'm at professionally and where I thought I might be, um, when I look at my body and realize, oh, you know, I've, I've definitely put on some COVID weight, um, you know, all of these things. It's like, even when I have those kinds of thoughts, I think, uh, yeah, but now it's a new moment and I can have a different thought or I could just have no thought at all. I can just sit here and think about how it feels to have a butt that's on a seat. Yeah, what does that feel like? How does, how does my body feel? And my pinky toe. I always direct people to their pinky toes if they have them, you know, because we don't think about our pinky toes a lot. But if you, you know, they play an important role in balance and lots of other things. And sometimes sandal game if you wear sandals. So you definitely got to have the toes looking good. But, but thinking about all of these things that support us that we don't even really reflect on. But then we spend so much time stressing about other things. So for me, even if the next moment is just to think about that, like, what are some areas of support that I have that I... Um, haven't even reflected on. So yeah, for me, I think that's a big part of it because I think about work and all these other things that I'm trying to do and some things go well, some things don't go so well, some things explode in my face. So, you know, but in spite of that, like there are some other things that that I can anchor in um, and connect to, yeah. Oh, I love it. Gratitude oh, yeah. and being, yeah. Oh, my powerful. You've heard this before. I know you've heard this before, but when you said gratitude, and I thought um, I thought about the cookie story where the, the woman's in the airport and uh, she's got a bag of cookies and she gets to the gate. This is when people could go to the airport. Um, 
And so she's like, ooh, gonna have some cookies, sit here, my flight's a little delayed. So she, um, she gets her book out and then she starts, um, you know, she digs into the bag of cookies and has a cookie. And then she's just kind of hanging out. And then the guy next to her reaches in the bag and has a cookie. And uh, she's like, oh, where's my pepper spray? Oh, that's right, I can't have pepper spray, I'm in the airport. So I'm just gonna have to sit here. So then she has another cookie, but she kind of takes it aggressively. Um, and so they just go back and forth, right? So they're just having, she has a cookie, he has a cookie. And so then they get down to the last cookie and they both look and see it's, it's the last cookie. So then he like picks up the bag and like offers her that last cookie. And she's like, how is he gonna offer me my last cookie? So, uh, so of course she snatches it up and then, then they call and you know, it's time to get on the plane and then she gets in the plane. And so um, she's putting her book away and then as she's putting it in her bag, she sees her bag of cookies unopened. And then she realizes that the entire time she was eating his cookies, thinking that he was eating her cookies. And I just think about how many times in life I've had a similar experience where I've been the cookie thief and not just a cookie thief, yes. like an angry, entitled, um, just self-righteous cookie thief, right? Um, and then another person's been gracious with me and so even just having gratitude for that, for the times when I've acted like a complete fool and people have been um, gracious and believed in me. And maybe there was a little flavor of disappointment in me as well, you know, um, but still believe the best in me. And so thinking about that too, and realizing every moment is an opportunity to, to connect with that. Thank you, Adler. It's been such a treat to spend this time with you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. You can explore more of my teachings at www.nickkranz.com. By becoming a monthly member, you can join the online Sangha, where I offer a path of practice and study for the membership. Social Meditations Podcast is copyrighted by nickkranz.com Productions. Our theme song, Naturally Spaced, is by New Hermitage, which is comprised of Andrew McKelvey, India Gailey, Ellen Gibling, and Ross Burns. <laughs>